Yes, my wife Sarah is uh, my better half, and we did serve several years on staff here at Kingsway before moving uh, to Owensboro, Kentucky, where we now serve at Owensboro Christian Church. And I, I can say this, after three and a half years in Kentucky, a strange land south of the Ohio River, um, whatever you've heard about your neighbors to the south, Kentucky is a fantastic place. Um, but it is always good, as they say, to be back home again in Indiana. And this is home for us. Sarah and I both grew up in Hendricks County. And so we spent the past few days, just like Matt did in Ohio, with our family here. And I realized while I was home, you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time. Have you noticed this before? My mom's family is, is a large family. When we gather together, there's probably 50 people or so that come together for Thanksgiving. And so, of course, everybody gathers together for the meal because nobody wants to miss the food. And then as soon as the meal's over, people scatter all the way throughout the house. And so um, the kids go down into the basement because there's video games in the basement. There's a pool table. They pull the board, the board games out of the closet, which... Um, eventually gets strewn all over the place. And so the adults try not to go down to the basement because after a while it resembles a bit of a, a war zone. Um, the adults stay up top. And up top, the adults have their things that they do. There are some adults that like to play games themselves. Uh, euchre is a, a favorite in our house. If you've got any Euchre people, players out there, um, maybe not. So that's, that's okay. Uh, we, play, we play some Euchre. Some guys are watching the football games. And there were, there were three games uh, this past Thanksgiving Day, unless you, you wait that for the Colts, and then there were two and a half uh, games that took place. It's okay. I'm, I'm a Colts fan myself, so it's, it's okay. Uh, there's no football team to root for in Kentucky, so I still pull for the Colts. You have other adults at my family gathering. They are over um, clipping coupons and looking at deals. They're going to be taking place for, for Black Friday. And if you were really interested and you wanted to, to watch any of these family gatherings from 1985 to 2005, you could watch them on VHS tape because my Uncle Don spends the time walking around recording everything that takes place at these gatherings. And now he may do it some on his phone, but he used to hold the big camera on his shoulder and he'd walk around and stick it right in your face. You can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time. I enjoy spending time with my wife, Sarah. We go on walks together. We go on dates together. Um, in the kitchen, I'm the sous chef, which means she's the boss, but I will cut the zucchini, I'll crack the eggs, and whatever she asks me to do, and you've got your things too. You may love spending time with your grandkids, could be for you woodworking, could be landscaping, maybe you'd like to spend time invested in your business. But if you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, what should we do with John chapters 13 through 17 in the New Testament? If you've got a Bible, I invite you to take it out. You could use your app on your phone as well. Turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13. I know it's going to be on the screen, but I always encourage people back at Owensboro to, to follow along in their Bible with me as well. So if you have one, um, you'll find John about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. It's the fourth book of what we call the New Testament. And while you're turning there, you need to understand the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel cover three years of Jesus' life. And when you realize that even the first chapter of John's gospel talks about how Jesus existed from eternity and how he was involved with creation, you could argue the first 12 chapters of John's gospel cover from the beginning of time until about 2,000 years ago. And then John spends five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, covering only a few hours. He takes those five chapters to talk about just one night and how Jesus spent it. So this was particularly important for John 
in his understanding of who Jesus was, what he means for us, and what he now asks of us because of the time that he spent um, on this one evening. So I want to set the context for you here. John chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, It was just before the Passover festival, which was an Old Testament celebration that Jesus was about to embed with some new meaning, but it already had some present meaning for him and his disciples. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, John says he loved them to the end. So we're told here at the outset of John 13, Jesus knew this was the last night he was going to spend with his closest followers. What would you do if you knew Thursday would have been the last time you would have gathered together with your family for a meal? Would you have approached that day a little bit differently? What if you you knew tonight was going to be the last evening that you spent with some of your closest friends? What would you do with them? What would you you say to them before your your paths um, diverged, you went different directions? What would you do if you knew tomorrow was going to be the last day that you ever spent at your place of work? Some of you may think that's a pretty awesome thing. Like you're hoping that this... um, this may actually be what takes place tomorrow when you go to work. But for most, what would you do if you knew this was the last time you were going to spend there? Jesus took that moment, knowing it was the last time he was going to spend with his disciples, and he used it um, to give them this vision of carrying on his ministry. So in a sense, he, he's passing on the baton, so to speak. And on one hand, we should be very hesitant to receive that baton. Because Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He gave his life as a perfect sacrifice so that we could have forgiveness of sins, that we could have true life in him. We can't do that for ourselves. That's called grace. That's why we worship and we serve Jesus. But on the other hand, every single Christian, every follower of Jesus is called to to carry on the ministry of Christ and that we are to care about the things that he cares about. We are to do the things that he asks of us. This is called discipleship. And so today, what I want to talk about is the challenges that we face when we attempt to carry on the ministry of Jesus. And the question I specifically want us to consider is, how do we strengthen others when we know ourselves to be weak? How do you offer encouragement and hope to someone else when you know your own struggle with depression and doubt? How do you offer a loving rebuke to someone? You tell them, you know what, Um, that's probably not God's will for you. You shouldn't be engaged in that relationship. You shouldn't be involved um, in that habit. Like, how do you have this conversation with someone when you know your own sins and your own failures? And to begin to unravel the answer to that question, um, I want us to look at John chapter 13, now starting in verse 21. So we're going to skip a few verses down from verse 1 to 21. In between these two verses, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. Um, If you've read this chapter before, you're familiar with the story. He washes their feet, and then he gives them the command, I want you to do the same thing. Now, it's not necessarily clear if if he actually wanted us to wash one another's feet, or probably more likely he wanted us to have this same spirit among other people that we were willing to serve them and take on a place of humility in in order to love them. So Jesus has washed the feet. He's told the guys, I want you to do the same thing. And then it says in verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. 
His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is code for John. So when you read this disciple whom Jesus loved, you think John, who's the author of this book. So one of them, this is John, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and he said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, and we'll talk about that in just a second, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, the Bible says Satan entered into him. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, and if you're uh, new to church and you're still kind of learning your way around the Bible, let's just say, suffice it to say, this is not a good thing, okay? Never good when it says that the devil uh, enters into someone. Uh, we don't know if this is like a possession that takes place. We don't know if this is some sort of influence that's happening in Judas's life, but this is not a positive thing. It says that after this happened, Jesus told him, what you were about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And verse 30 says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So here's the scene. I want you to understand what's happening here. They're having a meal together. Um, Jesus in the upper room with his closest friends, the guys that have been following him for three years. Their meals looked a little different than the meal that we had with our family and friends on Thursday. So you probably all gathered around like a high top table. You were sitting in chairs, plates, and you had this meal together. You may have taken your food and spread across the house, sitting on a couch, you know, watching a football game on TV. They would have had their meal together reclining at a table. So in that day, the table sat just a few inches off the ground. Um, you would all spread around the table, and then you would recline on one arm, and you would reach across, and you would grab the food with the other, and you would share it together. And so Peter is sitting across the table, we're told, from Jesus and John. And when Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, Peter sort of motions across the way to John. And he says, hey, John, ask him who he means. Which one of us is going to betray him? And so it, we're told that John reclines back against Jesus. It doesn't make sense the way we share meals together, but if he's leaning next to Jesus, he reclines back. He's in Jesus' chest at this point, just right here in his bosom, and he whispers to Jesus, he asks Jesus a question that when we're reading, it may sound like the whole table is involved in this discussion, but it's really just John and Jesus. John asks Jesus, uh, Jesus, of whom do you speak? And so Jesus tells John, he says, it's the one to whom I dip this piece of bread and I hand it to. And then very nonchalantly, Jesus dips the bread, hands it to Judas. This happened so quickly, it happened so seamlessly that John says no one really understood what was going on. We know that three people only have at least some idea of what's taking place. And I'll give you a hint. All their names start with J. So Jesus understands what's happening. John, who writes this gospel, has some idea. And then who's the third person? Judas. But Peter, who asked the question, he's still left in the dark. So pick up here the story in verse 31. This exchange has just taken place. Judas has left, and it says in verse 31, When he was gone, Jesus said, 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. That part's important for what's going to unfold. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? So this is the same guy that just asked John to ask Jesus who's going to betray you. He now asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So Peter asked in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Sounds like one of your children. I want this now. He says, I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered in verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now if you know much about Peter, uh, he has the tendency to be... Um, I don't know what word we might want to use to describe him, uh, a little bit excitable. Okay, he has what you might call an aggressive personality. You know anybody like this in your life? Um, someone who doesn't um, hesitate to speak what's on their mind. They're not afraid to ruffle some feathers. They're frequently putting their foot in their mouth, getting themselves in trouble. I mean, this is Peter. So to be blunt, Peter's a bit of a hothead. But to be fair... You need a few people like that on your team. You need some people who bring a little bit of passion. But on this particular night, Peter isn't just excitable. Peter's upset. He's upset because he knows this is going to be his last night with Jesus. He's upset because Jesus has told him one of the 12 disciples is going to betray him. He's upset because he can't figure out which one it's going to be. And so when Jesus tells him, Peter, where I'm going, you can't come, Peter says the first thing that comes to his mind. He says, Jesus, even if you die tonight, I'm going to be there by your side. Now, do you think Peter meant what he said? I do. I think Peter genuinely meant when he said to Jesus, Jesus, even if you die, if they take you away, I'm going to be standing right by your side. I, the same way that I think most of us are genuine when we say what we say about our faith or about God, the problem is it simply wasn't true. As you go on and you read the Gospels, you read the Gospel of John, you find out that Peter did indeed deny Jesus on, on three occasions. Other Gospels fill in a little bit of the, the account, some of the details that John leaves out. Um, one of those Gospels is called Luke. A guy named Luke wrote the the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, he tells us some details about this conversation between Jesus and Peter that John leaves out. I find them pretty interesting. Luke 22, verse 31 through 34 says this, Simon, Simon. So this is Jesus speaking. Um, he's speaking to Peter. Another name for Peter, his original name was Simon. So Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back that you would strengthen your brothers. But he, Peter, replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. 
It's a very similar conversation to what's in John, but with a few extra details. Um, We're told here that there is this idea of sifting. Peter's been asked to be sifted. The disciples have been asked to be sifted. To sift, it's a farming term. It means to separate, uh, in a spiritual sense, the desirable from the undesirable, or better yet, the genuine from the disgenuine. So we're told here that Satan has asked to sift the disciples as wheat. What that means is he wants to prove to Jesus that the people who are closest to him in a moment of stress are going to abandon Jesus. And that this guy named Peter, who was one of Jesus' like inner, inner circle, even Peter is going to deny Jesus when, when the rubber hits the road. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the enemy, the devil, works this way in our life. John chapter 10, just a few chapters before what we read earlier in chapter 13, tells us that the enemy comes to kill, steal, destroy. This is the way that he works. Our church back in Owensboro, we've been studying the book of 1 Peter all fall, starting in August. We'll, we'll conclude it next weekend. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Our enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. This is just what our enemy does. He does towards us. And even the enemy's name, the devil, tells us something about who he is and what he's about. Someone shared this once with me. I found it super interesting. I want to share it with you. You might find this to be helpful. The word devil in the Greek language is a combination of two words. The word dia, which means through, it's a preposition, through or across. And then the word balo, which means to throw. So you take these two words together, diabolos, the devil, it literally means to to throw something through or throw something across with the idea of sending what it goes through scattering into different directions. And so if it helps, um, sometimes I'll use the analogy of like a grenade. pull the pin of a grenade, you throw it in to a group of cargo, it sends the people, it sends the cargo scattering uh, different directions. If you're a sports person, you can think of bowling, okay? You've got to be a good bowler for this analogy to work. If you throw a lot of gutter balls, this is going to fall on deaf ears here and for a moment, but if you're a good bowler and you've gone, you've seen someone throw that ball right down the lane, the ball hits those pins, it sends them scattering in every single direction. This is a picture of what the enemy wants to do in your life. He wants to pop you in the mouth, he wants to send you scattering, he wants to separate you from all the most important things in life, from your family, from your friends. He wants to separate you from your community. He wants to separate you from your church. He wants to separate you from the truth. He wants to separate you from God himself. And so I need you to understand this morning that there will be sifting in the life of every genuine follower of Christ, especially if you lead other people or you are trying to share your faith with someone who doesn't know Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are a parent trying to share with your kids, a grandparent, a coach, a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, a pastor, an elder. Doesn't matter if you're somehow involved in leadership in the community or you're just trying to be a good neighbor to the person who lives across the street. The enemy will try to prove that your faith is disgenuine. He will try to ensnare you with sin. He will try to to separate you from Christ. And his goal is not only to harm you, his goal is to harm all the people who look up to you. So Jesus is having this conversation with Peter in the Gospel of Luke. He explains that Satan, the devil, has asked to sift you, plural, meaning all of the disciples like wheat. But Jesus says specifically, I have prayed for you, singular, meaning Peter. 
Did you notice that? Luke 22, look at this again. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has, has asked to sift all of you as wheat. It's plural in the original. But I have prayed for you, singular, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, that you would strengthen your brothers. So here's the deal. When Satan attacks the whole group, Jesus' strategy is to pray for an individual. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this. When Satan comes after the group, Jesus prays that one person will find the strength to stand up, turn around, and strengthen the others. So you think about this in relation to your own life. Might this mean that when the enemy comes after your family, or he comes after your community, or he comes after your church, or whatever he might come after, that Jesus may specifically pray for you to be the person who finds strength in him, stands up, and strengthens the people who are around you. When the devil comes after your marriage and tries to separate you from your spouse, the person you pledged yourself to before God and others, separates you from your family, might it be that Jesus prays specifically for you to be the one in the marriage who will stand up and strengthen the other? You say, well, you don't understand my spouse, and they don't put in the same effort that I, they do, I do, and like I'm the one carrying all the weight. Might it be that Jesus prays specifically for you, and this is why you're finding the strength to fight for this, and that he's calling you to continue to fight so that you can restore and heal this marriage? And as you think about those possibilities in your life, whatever it might be that he may pray for you, consider this also. Jesus knew Peter would fail. He knew it. He knew Peter was going to deny him, and nevertheless he prayed that after Peter had been sifted, he would turn back and he would strengthen the others. Wayne Cordero, who's a pastor in Hawaii, writes this. He wrote a book called Sifted, talking about this dynamic of us being um, sifted and, and worked upon by the enemy and even by God to bring us to a place of stronger faith. He says, a leader will be sifted. That's not the question. The question is, will he or she emerge from the sifting as a successful, and when you read that, you read stronger leader. So the question I asked at the outset this morning, how do we strengthen others when we know ourselves to be weak? There are two primary ways. One is we follow Christ's example, and the second is we embrace Christ's grace. And so I want to talk about these two this morning. The first is this, we strengthen others in our weakness by following Christ's example. You know, right, that Jesus experienced weakness. Sin? No. He never sinned. But weakness, anxiety, stress, temptation, Jesus experienced these things. He experienced temptation in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. He experienced deep sorrow in John chapter 11 when he lost one of his really good friends named Lazarus and he saw death tear that family apart. We're told in John chapter 13 that his soul was troubled, like he experienced something deep inside his being when he announced that one of his closest friends would betray him. And the book of Hebrews kind of summarizes this whole idea of the things that Jesus experienced when it writes this. It says, it's talking to us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so then this is our encouragement and our response. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
I don't know about you, but, you know, I serve a church across the river. We talked about this, so I can be transparent with you here for a minute. I don't like to appear weak. I, w- I would rather come across as strong and like I have everything all together all the time, especially as a leader. You don't want to appear weak. You want to appear strong. Maybe you felt the same way before in your family or your ministry or whatever it would be. And yet I'm learning and I see here in this passage that, that in God's kingdom, our weakness can become strength. And what I mean by that is when we take our weakness, which we're naturally going to have, and we funnel that appropriately, God is going to turn it into his power. We see this in Jesus' life. Jesus faced 40 grueling days of temptation in the wilderness, but without those 40 days of temptation, he would have never completed his public ministry. Jesus experienced the death of his friend in John chapter 11. John eleven thirty five, 35, shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Maybe you've experienced loss this year. Family or a friend, like that's especially painful at the holiday season. We think about this person that we've lost. Jesus understands the same feeling. And for him, what he experienced in John chapter 11 gave him the resolve he needed to know that he had to defeat death. He had to do what God had sent him to do because he had to save us from this thing that plagues us. When Jesus spoke of one of the disciples betraying him, it says he grew emotional, troubled in spirit. I mean, he'd invested three years in these guys, and now Judas is going to sell him out for just a few pieces of silver. Jesus was troubled in spirit, and yet he took that moment in the upper room where he was troubled, and he used it as strength a few minutes later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying to God and he felt entirely alone. You see, we learn from the life of Jesus that in our weakness, we can begin to serve in God's strength. And dare I say that only in your weakness will you begin to understand what it means to serve in God's power and God's strength. There's, a, there's an author I enjoy uh, immensely. He's a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. He writes about this. Um, I share this quote from time to time in Owensboro. I may have even shared it once here at Kingsway, um, but you have slept since then, so it's entirely okay and appropriate for me to share this again. And this is what he says. He says, Do not imagine that because you find yourself in turmoil, struggling with turbulent fear and uncertainty, that this means you have come the wrong way or arrived at the wrong place. The idea that Christians should always have nothing but inner peace and tranquility is at best a half-truth, at worst a romantic or existentialist betrayal of the Jesus of Gethsemane. This is the way our master trod, and he has invited us to follow him, to watch with him, to wait with him, and to pray with him. So the first way that we begin to understand how to strengthen others in spite of our weakness is we follow Christ's example. Jesus did the same thing in his life. And the second way we do this is by embracing Christ's grace. So after Peter denied Jesus, Peter had his experience of grace a few chapters later in John chapter 21. So if you've got your Bible open you want to turn a few chapters to your right to John 21, I want to share with you about this experience and conversation between Jesus and Peter after their conversation they had earlier This is what it says in the first three verses of chapter 21. It says, Afterward, this is after his death and his resurrection, Jesus appeared again to his his disciples. It was by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which were James and John, the author of this gospel, two other disciples were together. 
I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, just as a quick aside, it shouldn't surprise us that after Peter denies Jesus, he goes back to his original job. Because when we fail and we make mistakes and we feel weak, we always go back to the things that we know. We go back to old temptations. We go back to old relationships that maybe we know are not healthy for us. Um, Maybe some of us abandoned our true calling and we went back to a job or a career that we believed was easier. There was just less stress involved. We go back to things that are not necessarily good for us. We become jaded. We become cynical. Jesus doesn't give up on us. And we know that because he didn't give up on Peter. Verse 4, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. I think there's probably a sermon or so there in that verse, like not realizing even in that moment of grace it was Jesus calling them, um, but that'll be another time. Verse 5, he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, said to Peter, Peter had questioned John in chapter 13, who's going to betray him? Who's going to deny him? John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And I imagine they were laughing at Peter as he was swimming uh, through the water there, and they were keeping up with him. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, verse 16, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he says this, truly, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. We're told Jesus said to indicate said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So in this passage, what Jesus has done, it's, it's incredibly interesting. Jesus has recreated the scene of the crime, Peter's betrayal. We're told that Jesus built this charcoal fire 
Uh, doesn't seem like that big of a deal at first. He just needs a place to cook the fish, right? Until you learn the only other place in the entire Bible where this charcoal fire appears was three chapters earlier, John chapter 18, verse 18, where it describes the same fire by which Peter denied Jesus. Jesus recreates the fire, and then he questioned Peter how many times? Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Same number of times that Peter had denied Jesus. So Jesus has recreated the scene of the crime. Scene of the crime. They had this incredibly kind of awesome, awkward, beautiful moment of grace and truth where Jesus lets Peter know, Peter, you have, you have denied me, you have failed me, but Peter, I forgive you. I have grace for you. I still love you, Peter, and I have great plans for you. And I'm imagining someone here this morning needs to hear some of the same words, those same words of forgiveness, those same words of love, those same words of a second chance, that you have weaknesses, yes, every single one in this room does, real weaknesses. You may have let somebody down. You may have let your family down. You may have let your church down, your boss down. You may have let Christ down. And yet Jesus looks at you and he offers you the same grace that he offered Peter. He has not given up on you. He still has big plans for you. Everyone who wants to be an influencer for Christ will experience sifting. And although the enemy intends it for evil, God intends this for good. God uses the hard times of our life to build us into the type of people he wants us to become so we can best serve him. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, God's grace is sufficient for you because his power is made perfect in weakness. And so I'll I'll close with this. You will be far better off as an individual, family, church, whatever it may be. You'll be far better off whenever you begin to serve Jesus in whatever form or fashion. If you realize when you begin, you will not have the strength to finish. You will not have the wisdom. You will not have the knowledge. You will not have the fortitude. To be frank, you will not have thick enough skin to do what he needs you to do. But God uses those experiences so that through our weakness, God grows us into people strong enough to accomplish all that he has planned. This is how weakness comes to produce strength. And so just as I said at the, at the outset of this message, you, that you could tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, I want you to take courage in this. Jesus prays for you. The same way that he prayed for Peter, he says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, that you would strengthen your brothers. Jesus prays for you. Romans chapter 8 tells us that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he intercedes for you. That means he prays for you. This is how Jesus spends his time because it's important to him. Our faithfulness is important to him. It should also be important to us. When you feel weak, follow Christ's example. He experienced weakness, but he drove that weakness to his Father and in the end he became stronger for it. And finally, when you feel weak, embrace Christ's grace. You may fall, but Christ will be there to pick you back up. And the beautiful thing of the gospel is the same grace that brought you into a relationship with Jesus to begin with is the grace that holds you in that relationship now. That even when you fail, he's there to pick you back up, to love you, and to give you a second chance. In church, that's good news, amen? It's good news. It's the gospel, and amidst all the other things we celebrate this season, Um, That is the prime reason to be thankful. Let's pray together.
God, I thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And as we learn today from the fourth gospel, that even when we fail you, even when we are weak, even when we had something in our mind we thought was going to unravel one way and then it ended up going a different direction and now we're picking up the pieces um, in those moments, maybe even especially in those moments, you were there praying for us, encouraging us, picking us back up, telling us to keep going because you still have plans for us. God, I'm thankful that I can come spend a weekend uh, with friends and family here at Kingsway, and I'm thankful that you don't look at churches the way that we do. You don't see one on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones, the same way that you don't see now one at 2818 New Hartford Road. You see the people who are looking to Jesus Christ for strength and grace as your one true church. And so even though we gather in different locations, even different states, God, I'm thankful for the bond that we have in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It is that same bond that unites us even in our weakness and that you can use for your glory when we drive our weakness to you. So help us to do that. Help us to do that as fathers, mothers, family members, coworkers. God, help us to do it just simply as, as church goers that we can make this place and your church all that you desire it to be and that you would receive all the glory for it. Thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can gather in the grace of Christ. We pray all these things in his name. All God's people said, amen. Um, thank you for letting me spend uh, the morning with you. Just a couple of things they wanted me to say. Christmas, uh, the Christmas series starts next weekend. Uh, they're pumped about it. They were telling me parts about what's going to take place. It's going to be fantastic. And so I encourage you to be here next weekend and celebrate um, the birth of our Savior. If you stand with me, I want to have a quick blessing over you, and then we'll dismiss. God, be with my friends this morning as they go to their different places, uh, homes, residences, work, as they uh, leave this place. Help us carry that grace of Jesus with us, knowing that the church does not exist in one place, but it's wherever we go and we carry Christ with us. We do this, to, Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.